Will you outlast your money? Do you stay awake at night worrying about providing for your family? Are you making the right decisions about your investments? There are many life-changing decisions that arise and questions you want answered when going through divorce or after you've received your settlement. This is the Financially Ever After podcast, where you'll hear stories of women like you and get advice from the industry's top professionals. Here's your award-winning and nationally recognized host, Stacey Francis. Thank you for introducing us. It's great to be here with Financially Ever After. Today, we have a very important topic. It's all about taxes. But before you decide to put those earbuds down or hang up your audio device, I have to tell you that this is going to be really interesting. And it's information that you really need to know. There's been a lot of tax law changes recently, and there's a lot of misunderstanding, not only among women who are getting divorced and have been divorced, but really even among matrimonial attorneys and some other professionals. And today we have Matthew Fagan, who is a partner at the Matrimonial Law Group of Katsky Corins. And before joining the firm, he actually worked at the office of New York City Mayor Michael Bloomberg and so has a real storied history in the legal field. Matthew graduated from Yale College as well as from Harvard University's John F. Kennedy School of Government, where he obtained a master's in public policy. And from Harvard Law School, there he received his law degree, magna cum laude, and was elected to the Law Review. Matthew's son, Max, is about to turn seven. We just were chatting. He's actually on school vacation right now. And he knows that his daddy is a lawyer who helps people share things, which I think is lovely. So thank you for being here, Matthew. And thank you for sharing and talking about this topic, which is you know, kind of a complicated topic of taxes. Well, thank you, Stacey. It's great to be here. So thank you. You know, I'd love to hear about, you know, what brought you here? So you were working for the mayor, Michael Bloomberg. What then brought you to matrimonial? Because that's kind of a big jump. But I think there's a really interesting story that you have to tell of kind of how your path and your journey took you there. It was frankly a fluke. I should start by saying that I always wanted to be a lawyer. And I think that's in large part because of my mother, who is a federal prosecutor. And then her brother was a lawyer for the ACLU. And my mother used to play mock trial with my brother and me when we were growing up. I love it. I love your mother already. (laughs) So do I. So I did public interest work for many years. In particular, even before Mayor Bloomberg's office, I was in Baltimore representing neighborhood associations there. And the time came after I got married when I knew I needed to move into the private sector, really for money reasons. And that I ended up in matrimonial law is something of a fluke. But I think it's worked out very well, because by and large, you know, these are cases where you're trying to help people where the prenups are one thing, but in the divorce cases, you've got situations where there are people who really need for the benefit of each other and often for their kids to get away from each other and you're helping them do that and disentangle themselves. So, you know, hopefully they can build somewhat separate lives and continue to care together for the kids if they have any. And, you know, you being a dad, I think brings even more importance to that of trying to, while families are separating, keeping the family unit together as much as possible. Yeah, it does help. And there are a lot of things we think about 
their shared parenting cases. Some are strictly financial. You, know, you want to make sure that one party isn't going to have a much nicer house than the other mm-hmm. because you don't want the kid to identify one parent with loving and luxury and feel bad about going to the other. But also you want to make sure they work together so that they have similar rules about bedtimes, about how yeah. much TV or Xbox they have, because there may have been a dynamic in the marriage where one parent was the disciplinarian and the other was more easygoing. You don't want to perpetuate that. You don't want the kid to favor one parent in the expense of the other. So you don't want it to be a source of friction between the parents as to how are we going to raise this kid. Yeah. There's a lot of challenges when we get back to that financial piece of, you know, making sure that each party, you know, has enough to have, you know, a safe house that just like you, there's not one living in lavish expense and the other one, you know, the person feeling unsafe and it's a very small house. I feel like other than just looking at like the straight dollars and cents, understanding the taxes and Matthew, you bring to this true understanding, I think more so than a lot of individuals and understanding the tax implications. Can you talk a little bit about what tax changes have occurred back in 2018? And secondly, how that is going to impact people getting a divorce in 2019 going forward? Certainly. So I want to first step back and think about the way it worked up until very recently. It used to be that if you had payments of alimony upon a divorce, the payor, who was usually a husband, could take a tax deduction for everything he paid. Mm -hmm. And then the recipient, usually a wife, Mm -hmm. was going to pay taxes on all the money she received. And she'd pay them actually at the highest possible tax rate, what's called ordinary income. So like it came to you in your paycheck, essentially. Exactly. That high high bracket. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a but here, which is that often the payor had more income and was in a higher tax bracket than the recipient. So you actually had a net savings because you had a deduction that was worth more dollars to the payer than the cost of paying taxes by the recipient. So you really had a net savings for the couple whenever you were paying this regular sort of alimony. And that sort of tax savings could be used for the benefit of one or both people. And we as matrimonial lawyers would do that to structure deals and the tax savings were an encouragement to everybody to come to a settlement. But there's a but, which is the new tax law, which was passed by President Trump and the Republican Congress at the end of 2017, it said, we are going to end this treatment as to federal taxes for any divorce agreement signed after the end of 2018. So beyond that, if your agreement is signed now, you're not going to get a federal deduction for the payor. You're not going to have federal taxes falling on the recipient because of that income. Those payments are ignored for income tax purposes. If your agreement was signed before then, you're, as we say, grandfathered, you're still safe. But going forward, we don't have those net tax savings at another level. So if your agreement was signed before December 31st, 2018, you're in the clear and you know, whoever's paying the maintenance or alimony can still take the deduction, but the person receiving has to pay taxes. Now we're in a completely different phase. That if your agreement has been signed, you essentially are going to get that money received tax-free, 
but whoever's paying it doesn't get that valuable deduction. Now, what's interesting is that from the surface level, right, if you are receiving that money, it sounds like a really good thing, Matthew, that you don't have to pay taxes, but there's an issue with that. Yeah, it is on the face of it, a good thing for the recipient. But the problem is that the payor knows it and the payor is going to be offering less money as a result. So there's one big caveat, which is Stacy and I are sitting here in New York City. And in New York, the deductibility and taxation on alimony was maintained for state taxes and our local New York City taxes. So if you're a divorcing couple in New York City, the payor isn't getting a federal deduction, but he, and it's still usually he, is getting deductions off the state and local taxes. And the payee is going to be paying state and local tax on that income. So number one, why New York, right? Why New York? And number two, this now makes it much more difficult to really calculate what the net amount after tax really is. So number one, why is it that New York is not following the federal law and at the state and local level, we're still taxing that this alimony and maintenance. Is it political? Is that? I'm just speculating here. I think it's a combination of political for two reasons. One is that, frankly, Governor Cuomo and the Democrats who are now in power in Albany really don't like President Trump and the Republicans in Congress. So they came in, I think, with a hostility to what the Republicans were doing with that tax bill. And the governor proposed this idea deliberately to make sure that the federal government wasn't following this change and wasn't following a number of other things that the federal government were doing. You know, moving expenses are another example of something where the state said, we're going to stick to the old federal rules, even though the federal government has moved away from them. The second thing is that you had an enormous number of people, particularly in the matrimonial bar, saying this deduction is a good idea. You know, if you've got an alimony case, you've got a case where someone is maintaining at least in part, two households, and they should be entitled to some benefit of that. Just like when you're married, you have what's usually a very big benefit of being able to file a joint tax return. Yeah. Yeah. So matrimonial attorney is saying and recognizing how beneficial it is for the person paying maintenance or alimony to get that deduction. And the other piece that you brought up that I think is really powerful is that essentially before, because of that really big deduction for, let's say, him, and the amount of taxes she was paying at her lower tax bracket was less than the huge deduction he was taking, money was actually being created, additional dollars. And here you are, a couple, where you now are maintaining two separate houses, twice as expensive typically, you know, dollars and are more needed now than ever. So it almost as if the deduction and her paying taxes helped at least put a little bit more of a band-aid on to make the situation better. Now we have the exact opposite. There's very little money being created because on the federal level, the highest taxes, she's not having to pay taxes. He's not, you know, taking a deduction. So I really find it worrisome that already divorcing couples who are feeling cash-strapped are going to suffer even more going forward. Yeah, and that's right. It is a difficult situation. This alimony deduction was one of the things that helped, and it helped expedite the settlement because as the wife's lawyer, you could say, 
oh, give me $100,000 in alimony, it'll really only cost you $60,000. Yeah, and now that we sounds can, much better, yeah, right? <laughs> yeah, and now we can come and say, maybe if you're in New York State, maybe we say, give us $100,000 in alimony, it'll only cost you $90,000. So Yeah, that doesn't have the same appeal or the same ring to it. Now, you understand this process and you understand the deductibility still on the state and the city level. How do you model this out? Because we're finding from the financial perspective, and I don't want to get too nerdy for, although let's be honest, I'm a nerd, the software, the financial planning software even doesn't account for this right now. We have to, what we're doing right now is we're having to actually manually show that she's having to pay her New York state and her New York city taxes on that money. And then having to throw in a deduction for him only at those two levels, the New York state and New York city and showing that he can't deduct it on the federal. So it's creating a lot of habit. It's creating a lot of work. And, you know, my thought is, is if us as financial planners are kind of struggling, how are lawyers kind of taking this very nuanced rule and code into practice? Yeah, that's a good question. And the first thing I have to say is that we as lawyers are never able to do this on as sophisticated or as precise a level as you do as financial planners. We can really ballpark it. We can look at the tax tables and say, husband is in this tax bracket. We think of that additional $100,000, if he's in a 6.85% state tax bracket, about 6,850 of those dollars are gonna come back as a tax savings. But that estimate could be wrong for any number of reasons, but it's a place to start, particularly in negotiations. Yeah, yeah. And how well known is this rule? Because I know when everything happened in 2017, myself included, I will admit, I thought that on the federal, state, and local New York City level, that there were no deductions and she was not going to be having to pay taxes. And of course, over time, you know, as I dug into the code more, realized this, particularly this impact for New York State and city residents. Is this common knowledge now? Or are, are some people still not aware? The federal changes, I think, are common knowledge among the matrimonial bar and tax preparers. The state changes, I can't speak to the tax preparers, but the matrimonial bar, much less so. News has really been trickling out. And the problem was that if you were to ask an average person, what are the five most important things in the Republican tax bill? Most people are not going to name this. They're going to talk about you know things that had trillion-dollar impacts on the budget and on yeah. the welfare of kids. It wasn't even one of the five most important things to most people in the subsequent state budget. So really in press coverage, it got overshadowed. And just now people are realizing, and when you get your New York state tax forms, it's going to be under the additions to federal income section with 500 mm-hmm. other things. Yeah. And there's certain provisions in the law that are going to sunset, meaning that they're eventually potentially going to go away. Is this one of them? No. Some of the other things related to divorce are, but the alimony provision is scheduled to stay. Of course, Congress could reverse it. And not to speculate, but would this be something that if turns out 
in a few years we have a democratic president and Congress, would this be one of the bills or issues that they would focus on or is this off their radar? I mean, how important is this? Yeah, the matrimonial bar is continuing to raise this. I think the ABA has called for the restoration of the deduction, but I don't know that it's on anybody's radar screen. If you care about it, you're going to have to ask people, ask presidential candidates and ask a Democratic Congress if there is one. Yeah, yeah. And it's interesting how what happens in Washington can impact the pocketbook of divorcing yes. couples. I mean, I do have to say, of course, what's going on politically is part of our everyday life. But, you know, this is a situation where everyday normal Main Street people may not have realized how tuned in they need to be to what's going on. And this is why you need to be active, why you need yeah. to be oh, abs- voting, yeah. why you need to be out there, because if you're not, things will happen to you and you have no say over them. Absolutely. At the risk of quoting my mother again, her motto was, if you don't vote, you don't get to complain about who wins. I love that. And you know what? I'm going to steal that from my children. Feel free. Yeah, I will. I will. And I will credit her as well. So what about just talking about looking at the settlement agreement where you talk about a dollar not necessarily being worth a dollar? Tell me a little bit more about that. And when we say dollar not being a dollar, you mean you're talking about different assets or splitting of things. Yes. And there are cases where you can have an asset that's labeled as being worth a dollar that really isn't for tax or other reasons. And one of those is what we call embedded gains. So if you buy something and you then sell it for more money than you paid, you've made money. It's called a capital gain and you pay taxes on the difference, you know, sometimes the ordinary income rate, sometimes at a lower rate. Mm -hmm. But there's a reason if you look at a statement on a brokerage account, it'll say not only at the end of the month, your account was worth this, it'll be labeled as the total cost or basis or the assets to say, you know, this is what you paid for those assets. So if you've got stock that's worth $100,000, but It was bought maybe many, many years ago for $20,000. So you know that if you were to sell it, you would have a gain of $100,000 minus $20,000, that's $80,000. You'd have $80,000 worth of gain. You'd be paying some tax on that $80,000, and that's going to eat up some of the $100,000 in cash that you just got when you sold the asset. The way I often think of it is imagine that every time you buy something, be it a house or stock or a car, you put a little post-it note on it with a price. And then when you sell it, you take off the post-it note, compare them. If the price on the post-it note is less, you've made a gain, you're going to owe tax. If the price on the post-it is equal or greater, you have nothing and possibly you have a loss, which can be important in other ways we can talk about later. The biggest dollar value here is the homes. And there, If you make a capital improvement to the home, it's like you get to put a second post-it note on the house with additional cost and use the total. So if you bought your house for a million bucks or your husband bought your house for a million bucks and you got it in the divorce and then you spend another million dollars improving it. And then after the divorce, kids go away and you sell it for two million dollars. Well, you haven't really made any money. And the good news is you have no taxable capital gain. But 
when you divorce, all those post-it notes, as it were, stay on the assets. Mm -hmm. So that house, let's say it went up to three million and you bought it for a million, put a million dollars of improvements, then three million that it, you sell it for minus the basis, that two million, you've got that million dollars that you're going to have to pay taxes, capital gain on. And this is a challenge because there are some assets that might be hard for you to look at with that new pair of glasses, knowing that a dollar in that brokerage account may not be worth a dollar. And then we deal with retirement and you've got a retirement account, maybe a 401k or an IRA where a dollar comes out and it's as if it comes to you in your paycheck. And so you're having to pay ordinary income taxes. So that dollar coming out after you pay 40 cents in taxes, maybe you have 60 cents left. So it can be difficult to look at these things that look very similar, but in reality, after taxes are completely different animals. That's right. It can be very hard to do that. You have to be reminding yourself of the taxes and then you have to think about what is my tax situation going to be when the income comes. So the dollar in the IRA may, as you said, only be worth 60 cents. If you think I'm going to take it out when I'm retired, I'm going to be in a lower tax bracket. Maybe I'll only be paying 20% and maybe the dollar is worth 8%. Maybe you're thinking to yourself, not only I'm going to retire, I'm going to move to Florida and pay no state income tax whatsoever. So maybe that dollar is now worth 85 cents. You need some sense of your future. You'll never be yeah. sure, but it can often help to have a professional advising you on that. Exactly. The other thing I would mention in the context of retirement assets is what we're saying is true about most 401ks and pensions and IRAs. There are some that are not. They're what we call Roth or after-tax assets. Yep. And the way those work is usually if you put a thousand bucks in your IRA, you don't pay tax on that thousand bucks. If you put it in a Roth IRA, you do, but it then stays there. It could grow tax free. Maybe it turns into 1200 bucks. And then when you take the money out of the Roth IRA, assuming you, you know, satisfy all the rules, you don't pay any tax on anything. So you've got your thousand bucks, maybe turned into 1200 tax free dollars. So yeah those Roth dollars are in general you know, worth more than the regular type of retirement assets, which we call just tax deferred. And how I remember this and teach, I say, if you see Roth, that means it's really, really, really good. That R for Roth stands for really good. And it's important too, I've seen this done numerous times where he'll take the 401k. I'll take the 401k for 500,000. You take the IRA for 500,000. It's all lumped in sounds similar, right? Taxed at that ordinary income. But what you don't know is that that 401k has a Roth portion. So even though it's worth 500,000, maybe 200,000 of that 500 is in Roth. So that's really important too, to understand that if you do see a 401k or an IRA that you dig a little deeper to see is it number one a Roth or is there a portion of it that's a Roth? And it's important because we're seeing more and more the number of firms of employers that had Roth 401ks available for employees 10 years ago was paltry. It was something like 20%. Wow. Now it's closer to 80% of firms of 
employers offer a Roth 401k option. So this is something that we're going to see more and more. And unfortunately, people are trying to get away with getting a Roth without someone realizing it by not breaking up their 401k and disclosing, well, this is the portion that is the Roth, the tax-free piece, and this is the portion that is the piece that they will be paying taxes on. Yeah. So. That's I can't think of another word other than slimy. It's slimy. But you can, you know, you can detect it if you have the account statements, they will say. And I've seen, I've seen cases where, yeah, I've seen cases where that is in very small print, Yeah. but it's there. So then you can say, okay, we've got the $500,000 401k. We know that $200,000 of that is Roth. And I've got my $500,000 IRA. You give me $100,000 of your Roth money, which you can do, uh, and I will give you $100,000 of my tax-deferred money, which is, of course, less valuable, out of my IRA, which also you can do. And now we've each got a half million dollars, and each of us has 100,000 Roth dollars and 400,000 tax-deferred dollars. Exactly. That's the fair outcome. Exactly. So I want to talk about two other things. We've got a lot, but the first thing, Talking about the children, you know, what are some of the tax issues that we need to think about in providing for kids, you know, going through the divorce process? There are definitely tax issues there, and I've seen attorneys overlook them. Most of them involve not the income tax, but the gift and estate tax. You know, this applies when you're giving money basically to anyone other than your spouse, including your children. And as a general rule, if you're giving to the same person more than currently $15,000 per year per giver, you have to worry about the federal gift and estate tax. You have a lot of cases where you've got a divorcing couple, they've got a car, who, you know, who knows whose name it's in, but they say rather than you know, argue about the car, someone buys someone else out, they'll just give it to the daughter since that car is mostly driven by the daughter anyway. And that could very well be the right move, but it could also be a taxable gift. And you can have much larger cases where they say, you know, we'll use this big asset, either you know, we'll just give it to the kid or we'll use it to pay off a kid's debt. And that, you know, again, could be a taxable gift. In the worst case, you're actually going to be paying federal gift tax, which is you know, 50%, and that's no very steep. That. Even in the lesser cases, you can be obliged to file the federal gift tax return, which is, you know, not a big complex form, but like the income tax forms, you've got to do it. And in some cases, you can avoid that if you agree to file what's in effect a joint tax return for the gift tax. But you need both people to agree to do that. You need them both to sign the return. So that's something you think about as you're negotiating the agreement. And it very often helps to have other types of lawyers, particularly trusts and estates lawyers, or sometimes specialized tax lawyers to help you in that. And I know actually from that survey you did that a lot of women said it would be helpful in our divorce to have trusts and estates counsel or other types of lawyers beyond the matrimonial. I agree. There are a lot of issues that you have to think about. And often you're just trying to get through the process, not even realizing that, hey, this million dollar gift I just gave to my child it's going to have potentially tax implications. And even if you don't have to pay gift tax on that now, it takes away from your lifetime exemption. So it makes it more likely that when you do pass away, the amount that you can gift to your heirs without having to pay estate tax 
goes down. So there's a lot of issues. I also want to make sure that we talk a little bit about your practice, which is unique. Your firm does a huge amount of mediation and you know you call it what's called consensus mediation. Can you talk a little yeah. bit more about what that is? Because I'll be honest, I've not heard that term, consensus yeah. mediation. Yeah. yeah. So the term was actually developed by the chair of our department, Marcy Wachtel, with a capital U. So there's an us at the end. And it's a process in which uh, we're the mediator. So we're representing both parties. They both come to us. Mm-hmm. And usually what happens is if they have kids, the first priority is to get an interim arrangement for the parenting and then work that out permanently while we're investigating the financials. And then when there's a financial deal everybody's comfortable with, they'll sign a settlement agreement which covers that and we can file both those agreements and get them a judgment of divorce. In all of that, as well mediations, anyone's free to leave at any time, but if that happens, we're not going to be representing either party against the other. So both mm-hmm. of them have some level of comfort in talking to us. And although we don't require it, we very much encourage that each of them also have their own independent attorneys who mm-hmm. are going to have a limited role. They're not going to be advocating for them. They're not, I mean, negotiating the terms of the agreement, but they're going to be advising each of the couple and say, here's what this agreement would do. And here's the rights you would have in the absence of the agreement in court. Mm-hmm. And then there are a few advantages to doing things in this way. One is it's much less expensive than having a fully litigated case where lawyers would be fighting over everything and how many years worth of documents do you have to disclose and so forth and so on. We can also spend a lot of time with the people and find out what's important with them and craft an agreement that really responds to that. If you say, you know, this particular holiday is a big thing in my family, we're going to make sure that you know, the kids are with you on that particular holiday, you know, every year, not just in the odd numbered years or, or the even numbered years. We yeah, can, yeah. you know, craft sharing of assets that takes into account all these tax issues and a lot of other things. And in some cases, we can do things that a judge can't. For example, under New York state law, you have an obligation to support your kids only up to age 21. So there's Even if you're getting divorced, the judge has no power to order a parent to support a kid one day beyond the 21st birthday. In many other states, it's even lower, it's 18. But if we make an agreement, we can say, what do you think your kids are gonna do? Do you think they're gonna still be in college at age 21? Do you think they're maybe gonna take a gap year? And you can sign an agreement that says, you know, we'll support the kids until they get out of college or, you know, college or age 23, whatever comes first, whatever the parties can agree to something that fits, you know, what they feel comfortable with financially and their expectations of the kids. And that's going to be binding. Mm -hmm. Another thing that you can't do in court, but you can do in an agreement is make promises for your estates, except in Louisiana, you always have the power to disinherit your kids. So a judge can't order you to leave anything to your kids upon your death. Mm -hmm. But as part of a divorce, you can make an agreement to do that. You can say, I'll have the house, and then on my death, I will leave it to the kids, or I will leave X percent of my estate to each kid. And again, those promises are enforceable. And a lot of times it gives someone comfort to say, you know, maybe this is going to my husband, but I know that if he's careful with it and doesn't lose it, it's gonna pass to the kids. And so many individuals 
you know, that's what they're worried about. They want to make sure that their kids are going to be okay. That's right. When does in that process, the mediator yourself talk about the law? Do you ever yeah. talk about the law or yeah. is it just kind of like, here's yeah. the framework yeah. but here's yeah. what we can do. Yeah, we absolutely talk about the law and we find out from the people what the assets are and what their anticipated income and expenses is. And then we say to them, you know, here is roughly what a court would do. Mm-hmm. Here's the assets that New York State would require you to share. Here's the assets that wouldn't be shared because, you know, maybe you had them before the marriage. And there's a couple reasons for that. One is just because you know, the judges and state legislators who establish these laws don't know either of you. They're, they're sort of a neutral voice on how things should be split. But the other one is that we want to craft an agreement that's somewhat close to what a court would do, because if our proposal is very far from what a court would do, then whoever would do better in court has the incentive to abandon the mediation and run to court. Yeah. And Really, nobody wants that to happen. So we've certainly had a lot of cases where people look and say, we don't actually want to do that. We realize that a court would regard this as all yours, but we think it should be shared or in some cases, vice versa. But at least they're making that decision, knowing what the options are. That is so helpful. How do people find out about you, contact you? What's the best way, Matthew? You know, maybe the website and also on the show notes, we'll make sure that we include all that information as well. Just how, again, people can reach out to you and, and even hear a little bit more about the process of consensus mediation and how that works through the firm. That's great. So if you don't happen to be looking at this on something with a little underlined link, the website is katskykorins.com, K-A-T-S-K-Y-K-O-R-I-N-S.com, all one word, all lowercase, and my phone, 212-716-3259. So what we'll do too, Matthew, and all of you listening, we'll make sure that we put that on the show notes, because I think that will be really helpful for you to see and have both a link to the website as well as Matthew's information. And thank you for tuning in. And thank you, Matthew, for being here. Thank Um, you for inviting me. You've taken a topic, and I give you such hats off and credit, one of the most complicated topics with regards to divorce, and that is taxes. And you have, in one of the most eloquently simple yet understandable ways been able to present it. So I just have to say a great big hats off to you and your clients are very lucky. Thanks very much. I think yours are too. Thank you everyone for tuning in to Financially Ever After. If you have questions about your agreement, if you have questions about your financial situation, please do reach out to me, Stacy. You can reach out to me at stacy at francisfinancial.com and we offer what's called a free second opinion It's an x-ray analysis on your investments, your holdings, but also your overall financial situation. And we don't charge for that. We want to make sure that you understand where you're at. And it also helps you understand how we work and if we're a good fit for you, because we're not necessarily a good fit for everyone. But thank you for investing in yourself, for tuning in. And also, I give you hats off, just as I do to Matthew. Taxes can be a topic that can be quite frightening. So thank you for taking the courage and taking the chance to listen in, because I know that you've learned a lot. I know I have, too. Thank you, and we'll see you in two weeks.